It's a great way just to engage and interact. Uh, we are in Matthew chapter 24. And if you were here with us last week, um, Jake gave us such a great lens and framework for how to look at this chapter. This is what we would call apocalyptic literature. It speaks of the end times and it can be mind boggling. So you can read through this and get spun out real quick if you can't make sense of it. And one of the takeaways last week that Jake concluded with was, that Christians should be the least surprised people on the planet. And I couldn't agree more because when we read this and we see the state of the world or the future state of the world and we see what God is planning and how he's coming and what events are going to transpire, we should feel confident in knowing this is how the world goes. So when you look around and see moral decline in our society, we should not be surprised like, what? Oh my goodness, they're doing what? No, like that... It's very clear. It's going to go this way. So we should not be surprised. But the lens that Jesus gives us to kind of filter this whole conversation through is in Matthew chapter 24, verse 8. He says, all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. And he uses this word picture of pregnancy, childbirth, to help us make sense of the events of the end times. And there are signs, I don't know if you knew this, there are signs of pregnancy. So... We're going to look at some signs today. But you know how, I mean, there's some, I don't know if it's women's intuition. There's some kind of unspoken, like, code that women know, like, when someone else is pregnant. Have you noticed that? Like, there will be an instance where, you know, my wife somehow just knows before any announcement's made that a friend is pregnant. I don't know if it's, like, the famous pregnancy glow or maybe you just pick up on different cravings or notice that they're eating different food or ordering decaf coffee um, you know, some of those signs, you just, someone makes a birth announcement and inevitably you know, she'll go, yeah, I knew that. I knew she was pregnant. You know, like, have you noticed that? Does anybody resonate with that? Sometimes you just know there are things you can kind of watch and observe for. The strangest one was my dad, our, our last pregnancy, my dad actually said, yeah, I figured that. And it was a shock to us, right? Like we didn't. We, we had no idea. And so um, when he, that's how he responded. You know, we, we kind of like built up this whole fanfare announcement, you know, we're going to share with my parents that were pregnant, you know. And, and he goes, yeah, I figured. And I go, Dad, what, what, do you talk, what do you mean? What are you talking about? He's like, well, I mean, you sold the SUV and bought a minivan. I figured. <laughs> True. Dead giveaway, right? <laughs> like nobody sells an SUV to get a minivan unless you need to. But with signs for... Pregnancy, there are also signs for delivery, right? As the time comes close, the baby will drop. That's what the doctors say. Watch for that physical drop you can actually see or your water may break or you'll start having contractions that you have to count in time. There are going to be things. And as you anticipate a pregnancy and you begin to watch for the signs with that eager anticipation, there are moments when it's like a head fake, right? And it's like, was this it? Is this the time? Are we re- Is this going to be... Nope, just kidding, not yet. And you watch for these signs and try to make some kind of sense of them. But the reality is, at some point, you can't miss it. Right? Like, you'll know when you know. It will definitely be time. It's unmistakable. And in Matthew 24, Jesus is giving us a whole bunch of signs, comparing them to childbirth. And here's my my best understanding of his sentiment here, here's how I would summarize the words of Jesus from Matthew 24, is there are going to be some signs to watch for, but you'll know when it's time. It'll be unmistakable. 
So the question we were wrestling with last week as we walked through some of these details here is the question of Jesus talking about first century historic events that already took place versus future long-term end-of-the-world kind of events. And sometimes those two are blurred and it's hard to make sense of the difference. And so as Jake shared last week, we have to take this passage as if it's discussing both. Because really it is. Jesus is talking about events that are going to transpire in just a few short years following his time on earth. But then there are some events that aren't going to happen until the very end of the world. And I want to give you a framework for thinking about the difference between those events. But the problem lies in the question at times. And so in Mark 13, the parallel of this passage, there's a different question posed. In fact, uh, A.M. Hunter, appreciate his (laughs) candor, he says, Mark 13 is the biggest problem in the gospel for me. Because he just can't make sense of the question versus the answer or the answers in Mark 13 versus the answers in in Matthew 24. There's so much confusion on whether this is a current event that's taking place or a future event that's yet to take place. And then you got verses that really convolute that, like in, in Matthew 34 or uh, 24, verse 34, Jesus says, This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So then you go, Okay, perfect. He's talking specifically about the disciples' lifetime. But then in verse 9, he throws out, And you will be hated by all nations. And you're like, But they weren't hated by all nations. I mean, really, it was just Rome. So that's confusing. Maybe he's talking about the end of the world then. And then he throws out in verse 14, and the gospel will be preached in the whole world. Well, that says to me it must be something long-term in the future because we know that the gospel wasn't preached in the whole world in their lifetime. And so it's this constant bouncing back and forth, a pinging from the first century events to the future awaited events. And I say all that simply so that you can hold these things in tension this morning as we read the passage, that you keep the dichotomy of the already and not yet in your mind. And as we try to make sense of some of these events and interpret what Jesus is saying, that you would realize there are things that did transpire historically in the first century that Jesus is speaking of. And there are events that clearly did not yet transpire, which means they're yet to come. So we have to understand which category each of those things fit into. So let's Take a look at the passage, and before we begin reading, I'd like to pray and ask for the Holy Spirit to direct us together this morning. Matthew 24, verse 15. If you have your Bibles, I'll pray. Father, lead us as we read. Direct us as our minds engage with these words on the page. Illuminate them, God, by the work of your Spirit. Make clear sense of it, irrespective of what I may say about it. May your Holy Spirit... Be clear. In your name I pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 24 verse 15 says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. Already some of you are like, oh no. Here we go. Abomination of desolation. Standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is, his in, what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved 
but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand, so if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch comes, becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Okay, so your head might be spinning if you kind of track through some of those events and you're thinking, how do I make sense of all of this in light of what I know of the day we live in and the day that Jesus speaks of is coming. And my hope for you this morning, for us all as a church, is that we would know what we can know. That makes sense? That seems obvious. But that we would know what we can know. That we would take some time this morning to dive into a passage like this and actually dig for things that we can know. Because there's a temptation, I think, when we come up to something like this to sort of roll our eyes back in our head and think, oh my goodness, another thing on the end. Do I really need to know this? Does this really change my understanding of my relationship to God? Am I not still redeemed? And will it not matter at the end when I stand before the throne of God whether or not I knew specific dates, details, and signs? And yet, if we dismiss this, if we approach this with any kind of apathy, my fear is that we'll miss the beauty and the vibrance of this amazing story of God and that our character would be developed to become more like his in the process of refinement, that Jesus would actually transform us in his image through knowing and understanding what his plan is in the world, that we would learn of him and we would learn of ourselves and we would see with more beauty the events that are unfolding in the world. So I want to take some time this morning to know the signs. I want to dig in. I don't want to gloss over this or dismiss it. Let's know what we can know. Let's know the signs. So the first sign Jesus gives us introduces a, a dis, you know, kind of interesting discussion right out of the gate. Verse 15, he says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. So he gives us this first sign. When you see the abomination of desolation, what in the world is the abomination of desolation? In order to do that, to know that, we need to go back to Daniel, the book of Daniel. Now, that Daniel is one of two apocalyptic books in the Bible. We have 
uh, Daniel, which is really more of a history book. He describes the events that transpired in his lifetime. But what happened in the course of his life is he started receiving visions and dreams, and then he actually had an angel visit and speak directly to him about the end times. And so we have um, some clear description of the end of the world in the book of Daniel. Then we have Revelation, which is similar in that it was John receiving a vision, Jesus actually speaking to John, sharing those events and what they would look like at the end of the world. Then tucked between Daniel back in the Old Testament and Revelation, the end of the New Testament, you have the Gospels. And in the Gospels, particularly in Mark, Luke, and Matthew, you have Jesus speaking of these events. So what I want you to know, what I want you to see is how does Daniel correspond to the Gospels and correspond to Revelation? How do these three works connect? Because they do. They all work in concert. But in order to do that, I need to give you a little summary of the book of Daniel. So go back to Daniel chapter 9. What happens in Daniel chapter 9 is he's praying fervently for his people. So Daniel's calling out to God. He's pleading, saying, God, would you bring revival to the people of Israel? Would you turn your face back toward us? We know we've been wrong. We know that we've sinned. We know we've rebelled. We've been idolatrous. He's saying all these things. It's a prayer that, in fact, I've heard people pray of our own country, right? Like just pleading on behalf. God, would you send your spirit, pour out your spirit on us, send revival to the United States. We know that we're, we're drifting morally. So Daniel's praying like this. And when he's praying, while he's praying, the angel Gabriel himself visits Daniel in person. So Gabriel shows up and has this conversation with Daniel. And Gabriel says, Daniel, from the moment you started praying, a word went forth from heaven, and I'm here to tell it to you. And so he gives him the, the future telling of the, of the story of Israel, and he tells it in periods of seven years. So what he says is there's going to be 70 weeks for Israel's future. But what we know as we study Hebrew is that he wasn't actually talking about um, 70 weeks. Each week meant a period of seven. So 70 sevens, 70 periods of seven years, which is a total of 490 years if you do the math. So Gabriel's telling Daniel there's going to be a period of 490 years in Israel's future. And here are the events that are going to transpire. And so he starts to list these events. We can actually take those events, that list and lay it over the top of a historic timeline, and we can see those events transpire in Israel's history with the coming and going of some of the kings, the oppression, the things that took place. And what happens in Daniel as he outlines those events is he gets right up to week 69. So the end of week 69 speaks of the abomination of desolation. So ultimately what took place in Israel's history is Jesus came on scene in AD 33, and he died, and he was risen again, and then the temple was destroyed in AD 70. So if you look at this timeline from Daniel, if you can't read it that well, I'm going to put this online. It's on the website. But you can see the 69 weeks in yellow there, and those are all events that took place. You can continue reading in Daniel and see a lot of those events transpire. But again, there's a historic record of those events playing out, and you get to the cross in AD 33, which really concludes the 60, first 69 weeks of Daniel. And then you have the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And Daniel speaks of that in chapter 9 and in chapter 11 and speaks of that as abomination. 
And so when we talk about the abomination of desolation, he's really talking about the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Because what happened is the, the Roman Empire occupied Jerusalem, the city, and it's recorded that there were over a million Jews seized and killed during that time period. And while those Roman soldiers were occupying the city, they began to destroy, physically destroy the temple. And they bore the inscription of the emperor of Rome, which was an abomination over that land that had been sacred and committed to God. So what once was a symbol of God dwelling amongst his people was now desolate by the symbol of the Roman emperor. That's the abomination of desolation referred to in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. And then you fast forward and we get to the final week, week 70. We can take that down. It becomes kind of a mind-boggling distraction for a minute there. But what we have to ask ourselves is, are these 69, 70 weeks literal weeks that transpired? And how does the 70th week fit in? And we're going to get there in a minute. But before, I want you to just see how the revelation to John fits in with the 70 weeks that Daniel outlined and how that corresponds to the teaching of Matthew. So let me show you this one more chart. So this is from Warren Wiersbe, and he lists the signs of the end. So those are the things we've all read in Matthew chapter 24, that center column, false Christ, wars, famines, death, martyrs, global chaos, etc. All those things are listed out in Matthew chapter 24. You can see it starts in 24 verse 4, goes all the way down to 24 verse 31. And those all correspond with events that are listed in the book of Revelation. So you can see the corresponding passages. And in Wearsby's outline, he describes the events of the end of the age taking place all in the 70th week of Daniel, the final week, chronologically. And so the way that this fits into Daniel is all of the historic events led up to the abomination of desolation with the destruction of the temple in AD 70, and all of the future events that Jesus is talking about now have yet to come. So there's a gap between the 69 weeks of Daniel and the final week of Daniel. You can take that down. Again, those are all going to be online. If I, if I walk through the specific timeline of 69 and 70 weeks with a gap in mind, that's what we call a dispensational view. So I don't want to give you too many terms, but I want you to understand where I'm coming from. So I'm communicating to you, I'm taking a position this morning that could be argued against very um, biblically as well, that there are, are dispensations. So there are time periods with specific purpose for specific people. And so the first 69 weeks of Daniel happened chronologically, and then there's a gap, and the final 70th week of Daniel will happen chronologically once it's begun. And if you take that view, you divide this passage right here at verse 21. So Jesus says, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning. This would allow for you to take Matthew chapter 24, there's my communion cup. Sorry, guys. Matthew chapter 24, verse 1 through 20 are all historic events that happened in the history of Israel. Verse 21 through the end of the chapter, future end times events that have not transpired yet. 
and allows for you to make a clear division. And in order to do that, you have to take this dispensational view. And if you want to read more about that, I have a great article that's going to be posted online by a guy named Thomas Ice. He's far more brilliant than I am. It's uh, just fair warning. It's like 21 pages. Um, But he walks through a very clear biblical argument for dividing this passage right here in the middle and dividing out the first 69 weeks from the 70th week of Daniel. And that's all I'll say about that. But the first sign that Jesus gives us is the abomination of desolation. So we can look for that as a sign. As we look back in history, we know that sign's already taken place. It's not something we are supposed to watch for in our lifetime. Then you have signs and wonders. So Jesus shifts gears here. And the signs and wonders that he speaks of when he talks about a false Christ and a false prophet in verse 24 seem to correspond with the same discussion of an antichrist that's discussed in Revelation chapters 13 and 17. So if there is an antichrist under the influence of Satan who's performing great signs and wonders, then that would be what Jesus is speaking of here in verse 24. And it would be the same antichrist that was discussed back in the book of Daniel. When you get into chapter 11, Daniel talks about the king of the north who will overtake. And he does so by the power of the, the um, spirits of the air, spirits of the world. And so we can clearly see Jesus talking about an antichrist. And the reason I think that's important is because there have been false teachers and false Christs, have there not been? I mean, we, we've seen some of those cult leaders and some of the people who are trying to lead others astray. But to my knowledge, there has not yet been a false Christ performing signs and wonders. So that's a helpful distinction when people start to say, oh, there's the, the Antichrist is coming. Or look at the, you know, the false teachers. And this is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24. And that's what Revelation is talking about. And people get all riled up and excited. And I simply say, there has not yet been a false Christ performing signs and wonders. And these are not signs and wonders like, look, I pulled an ace of spades out of my... No, these are magnificent, supernatural Signs and wonders under the influence of Satan. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. says, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. With all power and false signs and wonders. He uses the exact language of Jesus in Matthew chapter 24. This has not come yet. We have not seen this antichrist, this false Christ. So it is a sign that we watch for. And yet... It becomes very important. Jesus says, like right, or right ahead of that, he says, don't listen to them. Don't go out. Don't believe them because I'm going to give you clear signs that this is the Antichrist. And he goes on to say that the distinction between the Antichrist, the false Christs and prophets, and the actual coming of the Son of Man is going to be so clear. He says in verse 27, the coming of the Son of Man will be like lightning from the east to the west. He says in verse 29, the sun will be darkened and the stars will fall. He says in verse 31, the trumpet will call. The coming of the Son of Man will be a very clear sign. You won't miss it. And as a side note, when we talk about the second coming of Christ, there's also a distinction made when I start talking about my gap years, the church age being a gap between 69 weeks and the final 70th week of Daniel, 
that there's a distinction modern theologians would make between the rapture and the second coming of Christ, that that's actually two events. I want to get too, uh, too deep with you here, but I think it's helpful to understand there is a rapture spoken of both in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and in the Gospel of John. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians, he says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and, in, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Again, in John 14, Jesus talks about going to prepare a place and that he's going to come back and collect his people. And so a dispensational theologist, theologist? Theologian, thank you. Um, theologian would say that the rapture happens first where Jesus comes and collects his church. Then the events transpire that are listed here. And then there is a second coming of the son of man. That he's coming back to reign in the millennial reign. And that's a, a distinction that they would make because of the 70th week of Daniel and the events that are outlined in that event, that Jesus would actually come and collect his church, his people, before the great tribulation. That's a pre-trib view. And again, glad to discuss and argue with you on that. But the reason I bring it up is because it allows for us to understand some of the distinct events from the coming of Christ versus what we would call the rapture of the church. And it then gives us a very clear understanding of the rest of Matthew chapter 24. See, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience. So if there is in fact a rapture of the church, it means that there very well likely could be Jews who are referred to as the elect, God's chosen people, his chosen nation, who still remain on the earth. And if that's true, then Jesus is leaving an instruction sheet. He's leaving verses as a guidebook for the elect to know what to do during those years of tribulation. So the church gets, gets uh, you know, brought up in the rapture, and then there's these period of years, and, and then Jesus says, well, here's, here's the lessons, here's the signs, here's what you watch for, here's what you do in the midst of that, and I'm coming back. And he talks about the elect that may be saved. So there's still opportunity at that point for those Jews to embrace Christ as their coming Messiah. Now, whether or not you're believing in a pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, whether you are premillennialism, postmillennialism, or dispensational view, and all the, the terms that I'm throwing out right now, you're like, I don't know if I care that much. I want you to know the signs because I think we need to watch for the signs. Regardless of, of which particular view you're taking on interpretation, and here's why. There are things that we can know and, and we should watch for, and there are things that, that we can't know. In fact, I think when you talk about childbirth, you know, and the coming of a child, it's probably better that we don't know, if you're a first-time parent, what that delivery room's going to look like and sound like and feel like, right? Like, it's probably just better that you don't know how bad contractions are going to hurt. Otherwise, no one would want to do it, right? But there are things you can know, and it's helpful to watch and to pay attention for the things that you can. So if I haven't lost you yet... 
this is what I think you need to know. This is what I think we need to know when we read this passage. I'm going to give you four things. If you're a note taker, write these four things down. This is all that I'm concerned about us walking away with this passage from. The first thing is you need to know the world will continue toward chaos. That's in verse 12. Jesus says, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will go cold. The world is going to continue towards moral decline. We have to know that and we shouldn't be surprised by that. The second thing I think you need to know is God is in control of that chaos. Listen to what he says in verse 22. If those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. He says, but they will be cut short. God is in control of that chaos. There's nothing missing his vision. There's nothing outside of his purview. So yes, the world is going to continue to decline, but God is in control. The third thing you need to know is Jesus is coming back in power. It's in verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Jesus is coming back in power. And the fourth thing you need to know from this passage, you need to walk away with this, is that his truth will reign forever. Verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. God's word will remain. It will not be compromised. There is no diminishing return on his word. It will not return void. His word will remain. You need to know the world will continue toward chaos. God is in control of that chaos. Jesus is coming back in power and the truth, his truth will reign forever. You don't need to know, although we might like to know, the day or the hour that God is coming back. It would have been nice for him to list some more specifics. We're going to talk more about this next week. It's in in verse 36. But God did not determine that necessary for us to know. You don't need to know. You don't need to know the specifics of the rapture sequence or the timing of his second coming in comparison to the rapture. You just don't need to know. It would be nice. We can dialogue. We can argue. We can dig. We can try to know. But for centuries, it has now been argued on these events and how they're going to play out. And no one has come to complete conclusion based on what is left here in God's word for us. So therefore, we don't need to know. And third, you don't need to know the timing of the millennial reign and how that corresponds to the tribulation. That's a question we all want to answer. It seems to give us maybe more hope, maybe more solidarity with with Jews. I I don't know what what our reason is, you know, for needing to know whether this is going to happen before, after, or during, you know, the, the tribulation. You just don't need to know. It's unclear in scripture. And I reside in the words of Daniel as I read through these final chapters and, and believe me, my, my head has spun in those final chapters of Daniel for several weeks now. As I've walked through these events and how they transpire, this is how he leaves. This is how Daniel leaves us at the very end of his book. Daniel chapter 12, verse 13. But go your way till the end and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. It's like this big deep breath, right? Daniel's like, hey, cool it. 
take a deep breath. <sighs> Go your way, do your thing. You're going to rest. You're going to stand in the allotted place at the end of the days. It's all going to work out just fine. That's what I hear him saying. So I think we do well to take a deep breath in the midst of a lot of difficult literature to discern. And I think as we walk away from something like this, it ought to produce an overwhelming humility in our heart as opposed to arrogance. That's the, the biggest challenge I have with end times discussion is it seems like every time I come up against a conversation where someone really wants to flex their, you know, kind of eschatology and show me all the things they know, is it feels like it's coming from a posture of arrogance, like, well, clearly you didn't read the blah, 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 right? Like, if it's, if it's ambiguous in Scripture, if hundreds of people before me in the last several hundred years have wrestled with these same things inconclusively, then who am I to walk away from a passage like that going, yep, I got it figured out. Give me a call. I'll explain it all. No, I think we do well to walk away with this humility in recognizing that God has this grandiose plan. And for whatever reason, he chose to involve us in the plan. And that should blow your mind. The, the God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, would map out a plan and invite you into the process. That's humbling. And so we know the signs, we watch for the signs, but then I think our takeaway is we marvel at the signs and we go, man, look how good and powerful and gracious and intentional our God is. When you read Revelation or you read the book of Daniel and then you try to put it up against these gospel teachings, it's very clear. God is very meticulous and very intentional. That's the one thing I take away. I go, he has a plan. I can't figure out what he's saying, but he has a plan, right? And so again, it helps me to marvel at the signs that God is playing out over the history and over time. Romans chapter 8, verse 22 brings us back to this pregnancy illustration. It says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Anybody relate to that? And you look around the world and go, Yeah, creation is groaning together in pain. The world seems to be moaning in the moral decline of our society. We can relate to that. And I think there's a clear connection to the final moments of victory that ultimately God is bringing his people to. It reminds me of April 11th, 2018, when God graced our family with two more human beings in about 10 minutes. Um, was one of the most traumatic events of my life. And uh, Cheryl's looking at me going like, traumatic for you. (laughs) (laughs) But I was ill-prepared for this moment. And, And, you know, you go from like this quiet birthing room with the happy music and the nurses speaking really softly, you know, when she comes in the room, how are you? And, you know, like going through that moment and then in an instant, like it felt like in 10 seconds, it transitions and they're literally transferring my wife from one bed to the next and they're carting her. And as they're carting her, like there's this entourage and they're throwing like gowns 
and masks and hats on me and they're saying, you got to follow us, you got to come here. And they move her from that room to an OR and there's these bright lights turned on and the room, you know, transitions from like two people to 12 people in 30 seconds. And they're all talking really loud and moving really quickly with this sense of urgency. And I'm watching this play out going, what is happening to my wife, you know, with fear and you go through this process and, and I just wasn't prepared for the pain of that process and for all of the, just the chaos and the noise and the drama of that room until you get to this moment where you're holding this tiny little human being who's just trying to get a breath and they're crying out for their mom and their dad and you're looking marveling going, what in the world? This is crazy, like a new human being, a new child. This is mind-blowing, right? And all of that trauma and that pain and the chaos, it seems to be so overshadowed by this moment when you're just holding this child with your mind blown. And I just wonder if Jesus uses that illustration and Paul comes back to it in Romans 8 because it was such a clear and helpful picture of the end of the world moving towards this utter chaos and the drama of what was to take place on the world's stage. And he didn't want us to be ill-prepared going into that room. He didn't want us to be caught off guard. He wanted to say, this is what's going to happen, and it's going to hurt, and it's going to be traumatic, and there's going to be crazy chaos, and it's going to all ramp up to this point when it feels like it couldn't possibly get any worse, but in the end, there's going to be this childbirth, this new life is going to be given in that moment. And Jesus himself, the creator of the universe is coming back with all the fanfare of heaven behind him. He's going to blow the gates of heaven open and descend on this earth. And he's going to crush all of the pain and all of the the worry and all of the frustration and all of the trauma that everyone is experiencing up to that point. And he's going to say, it's finished. It's done. It's over. Here I am. That's the moment we're longing for. We're waiting for. Contrasted with the pain of childbirth. Matthew chapter 24, verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the earth together. It'll be the most profound scene of conclusion. A moment wrapped in fear, but punctuated in victory. Jesus Christ will come, not this time as a child, in a manger. But with all of the power of heaven behind him, will come as a conquering king. Would you stand with me and let's hail that king Jesus as he comes.